Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Starting out on university radio playing happy hardcore music, a young Hudson Mohawk won the UK DMC Championships at the tender age of 15. As an original member of Scottish dance and hip-hop collective Lucky Me, Hudmo's ascent to global fame has seen him go from playing Glasgow house parties to releasing two solo albums for Warp, producing with Lunas as the gargantuan duo Tonight, which led a new wave in trap music, and producing hits for Kanye, Pusha T, and Drake. In this lecture with host Benji B, Hudmo speaks about his formative musical collaborations and inspirations, how he copes with fame, and how he creates his unique sound. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please welcome Mr. Hudson Mohawk. Hello. How are you doing? Tired, good. Yeah. So tell us about those early days. Tell us about like where you're from and uh, what your first club culture experiences were that went on to inform the music that you've been making right up to now, because I know that's a really important part of who you are. Yeah, so um, I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. Um, and it was, you know, it's somewhere where there's not really a huge, um, there's not really a huge amount of hip hop culture. It's mainly electronic music, it's mainly house and techno. Um, so we were running these small nights, which were, I mean, essentially like kind of open mic nights with where I would be like just DJing instrumentals for like local local rappers, whatever. And um, from playing a bunch of instrumentals, that got me into production. And, you know, that kind of sparked my interest in the whole the whole idea of being a producer in general because before that I was just purely focusing on DJing and and a you know turntablist type shit mm-hmm. yeah and tell us about your background as a turntablist because it wasn't <laughs> it, it was a bedroom hobby wasn't it but it went yeah, on to be much yeah. more than that in when you were well, 15 years old I mean it, it was something I think it's really valuable to to um to learn a skill at an age where you're you know where you're like between 10 and 15 or something like that like you absorb so much you have the time that you don't have to worry about your fucking bills and all this other shit like you can actually just focus on something purely so I'll be coming home from school and just uh, you know just hunched over turntables working entire time Basically, A Track was a was a huge inspiration for me because he'd he'd won the the world championships at a very young age, and I think I'd seen the video of that. And he's he's a couple of years older than me, and I was like, right, that's that's what I want to do, you know. That's and from there went went on to to competing in in a bunch of the the sort of battle DJ circuit. And you, did you used to run the Scottish hip hop? forum or something like that <laughs> no no, no. no. <laughs> okay allegedly um i think it's here interesting to touch on that because you know for hip-hop fans in the room that era that you're talking about of turntablism is often associated with like digging records get an mpc yeah. make yeah. a beat yeah and your best Which i think for... it's still relevant but yeah you know, of course but i think it's interesting it's more common at the you know, now for people to use a computer to make music in, in, course, in any way. Of course, of course. But at that time, you know, sort of making the kind of music that you were interested in with like Fruity Loops was a bit, people were a bit snobby about that, weren't they? I mean, the, I think there's that, that sort of stigma against Fruity Loops still exists. You know what I mean? Like if, but I've always said, you know, if you were to look at the, the actual, you know, just as a as a as an example, the the top ten Billboard songs, I guarantee that probably eight of them were made on Free Loops. <laughs> but people will still not acknowledge it as as professional piece of software. You know, it does everything that I needed to do. So. 
let's talk about the genesis, the, the foundation of, of ending up making music on Fruity Loops. Am I right in thinking that it started on a PlayStation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I started on a PlayStation, which is, a, I guess, the way quite a few people started because, you know, f well, for me anyway, it was before the era where we even had a computer in the house. And I guess this was kind of late still, but it was just maybe like 98, 99 or something. And I was like, well, I don't have any other means of making music than here's this PlayStation, here's this game. I may as well like throw myself into that, learn how to. And what can you explain it? What was it like sequencing on a PlayStation for people that haven't seen it? Um, it's the the actual i mean it's, i guess they call it a game but it's it, it, what i've heard is that it's very similar to how a lot of the old drum and bass stuff was made as far as um working on the the early atari computers and that that sort of thing um so i think it's it, it was actually a similar process to that but i had no idea of that at the time i was just sort of like you know, just learning the process of how to use that particular piece of software. Yeah. So were you sort of being influenced by computer games at the same time then? As, uh, yeah, sonically yeah, speaking, yeah, yeah. I mean, like yeah, in yeah. terms of absolutely, sound. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Full on Metal Gear, you know. <laughs> what was the first piece of music you made? What was the first tune you made? Oh, God. Um, the first piece of music I made, I think, was like... Uh, it must have been a piece in in school to for like a college submission thing, something like that, some drum and bass bullshit. <laughs> that must have been when I was about, I guess, like 14, 15, something like that. Have you got any music to hand on the laptop that would be the sort of thing... <laughs> that you might have been listening to at 14. Yeah. Like, yeah, what yeah, were you yeah. into me, at let school? Me switch, let me switch to yeah. Mini Jack. Hey there. At this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah. Um, bum too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. <laughs> I think it's important to bring it back to Glasgow at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that stuff was huge in Glasgow, you know. And um, we we actually make a point of of uh, doing little one-off events with the like playing this type of stuff every so often um, because you know, again, there's there's a stigma against it. But if you if you play that in a club in Glasgow, people will. <laughs> people will go insane for that you know and for for people that aren't familiar with Glasgow obviously we've got pretty much every country yeah, yeah, represented yeah, yeah, here yeah. um you know Glasgow really is one of the clubbing capitals of the UK you know people talk about London and Manchester and Glasgow is definitely in the same sentence but it really is unique there's nowhere else like Glasgow in terms of the intensity of the city and how that sort of is reflected in the unique energy in clubs can you sort of talk to us about what that feeling is yeah i mean i think it's it's maybe because of the size of the city and because of it's because it's a post-industrial place where you know traditionally there's over the last couple of decades been a lot of unemployment and a lot of you know a lot of hardship for people and the size of the city means that you know when when there's a, a an event on that a lot of people come together to you know to like just unite and have a have a good party you know and i think that's one of the main things and also i always say like because it has traditionally has such bad weather that it, that can cause people to actually make happy music <laughs> yeah, sure. um Talk to me about some Glasgow legends, people that you looked up to, DJs or producers or, you know, musical people that led the way. I really looked up to two guys called um, the Freak Maneuvers, who were like a turntablist crew. And, you know, they were the main sort of like hip hop scratch DJs in Glasgow. And they put me on, you know, student radio for the first time in, in my life when I was like, you know, whatever, early, early teens. Um, and 
them and I guess the the, the optimal guys. There's a, a, a inc- or there was an incredible club night in Glasgow called Optimal, um, where the, the it really just opened my mind to so much new music because it was primarily a techno night, but with a real sort of like punk ethos. But also they'd be playing soundtracks at the start of the night while people were coming into the club. They're playing soundtrack records. They're also playing like, you know, 50s, seven inches, stuff like that. And, you know, it was just like, how how are they getting away with this in a club environment? And people are still like, and that that was such an inspiration to me to see that like happening I, I was working at the club at the time I was just working behind the bar at the club and to to see that sort of happening in front of me people like losing their mind to some like you know literally some 1940s song or something like that it was just like what the fuck is going on here like it's crazy but that was a huge inspiration to me as well so tell us about the club that you ended up doing because there was a very important place where you met some important people, right? We started a night at a little, a little venue called Stereo, and it was, you know, it was it was really just a bar. It wasn't a it wasn't a club by any means. Um, and Callum started his, his rival night in a in another venue called called, Ad, called Adlib, and. Uh, and um, you know, after uh, after a certain amount of time, um, I guess our the night that myself and and uh, my friend Dominic were running was primarily hip hop focused, and the the night Callum was running with Jackmaster and the, the Numbers crew was, I guess, a bit more electronic focused, and at some point, sort of just rather than being rivals we we sort of you know joined forces and we're like nah we should we should really like own this you know there's no point as two little small knights be, like being rivals and fucking, you know it's a small enough city to not need that you know? and actually this record that you have queued up here is the first joint release that we actually did that was the kind of combination of elements of real commercial R&B and hip-hop with a little bit more left-field electronic production. And um, none of it was cleared officially. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, it was was a a hit kind of after-party and club record in the city at the time. And it also exposed me to a lot of new listeners as well, which, um, you know, did a lot for me at the time. Was it sort of a good practice, almost like a replacement for the ability to work with US artists or even a singer Absolutely, or rapper yeah. or whatever? Yeah, well, I mean... Was at, that clear that that was part yeah, of your dreams? Or yeah, thing? I mean, at that point, uh, at that point, my, you know, my focus was I desperately want to be working with you know, mainstream US artists, or not even technically US, but like, you know, mainstream R&B and hip-hop acts, but I'm like a kid in my mum's house in Glasgow in this city that's raining all the time in the middle of nowhere. Like, how would that ever, how would that ever happen, you know? So it was like, right, well, I'll get a bunch of, get a bunch of acapellas off of Soul Seek. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Callum was talking about Soul Seek earlier. I haven't heard anyone talking about Soul Seek. It's really good how like um these things can, you know, set the exact time period. Like this period that we're talking about right now is in the height of the MySpace era. I remember discovering exactly, you on exactly, MySpace. That's exactly, how I first yeah. found you. Yeah. And um Soul Seek and me. Yeah, of course, standard. Um <laughs> But tell us about Hudson's heaters. What was that? Well, so I I think it was like over 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 Christmas one year, I ended up making like, I don't know, 11 beats in three days or something like that. And then was like, right, well, 
I don't really want to put them out because I don't think they're good enough. Um, I'm just going to put them out for free on, you know, put a download link up and just fucking see what happens. It ended up that that kind of took off as well. And um, a bunch of those tracks from that have subsequently been released on various compilations and, and, and uh, other records as well. Mm. So we're talking like 2007 or something like this? Uh, that, that was 2006, I think it was. Okay. The other thing about this collection of sort of instrumentals that were included on, on the Heaters tape was that, you know, I was kind of sending them to MCs and stuff like that. And for the most part, the reaction was like, there's nothing I can do with this. This is like this is too too much of a mess for me to like put a verse over or anything like that so i was like right fuck it i'll just just put them out as instrumentals <laughs> yeah. it is interesting to talk about that because i do remember at the time a lot of your music was super left like kind of mad syncopated and you know it was seen as that but now you know that's fucking chart music Normal. you know yeah. what i mean <laughs> i mean it's Interesting, just as sort of an overall question for you to say, I dreamt of working with these people. It was 2006. I'm living at my mum's in the middle of nowhere, in your perception, in Glasgow. Um, so sort of working with Kanye West, starting to make the tune that we heard at the beginning of the lecture in 2012. Six years is kind of not a long time to make that dream a reality. If you could sort of pick one thing on that journey, as in, in terms of like what a really crucial step of you moving towards realizing that dream, what would you what would you choose? There's a number of things, but I think one would be, you know, I was I was mainly pursuing just a solo DJ career at that point, and I remember arriving at a festival in in like Hungary or somewhere like that, and receiving it like a one-line email that just said can you come to la night in like two days time or something like that you know and uh that that was like right uh okay um i guess i guess i can <laughs> come to LA, but you know it's it was a very surreal experience in terms of right i'm here doing like a you know relatively okay festival but it, you know it's me just performing on my own and it, you know to suddenly get an email from like an address which is like at canyouest.com is like oh, okay right this is actually this is actually happening now so bringing it back to um to oops and the and the kind of like vibration that that had for you um it's important to talk a bit more about the sort of um the numbers the lucky me wire yeah, block yeah, in that era yeah. because you know your crews have gone on to influence a whole next generation now and had a massive effect on dance music and hip-hop and you yeah. know like i mean do you want to talk a bit further about all the people involved in that yeah i mean it's something that i you know i it's i'm my own worst enemy with it because i i acknowledge that what we built out of that scene in Glasgow has influenced popular music in general, but I'm, I would never go out and be like, yeah, I invented that. Yeah. I did that. I fucking, you know, so, um, you know, I, I, I acknowledge that it's, it's, uh, been an influence mm. on a lot of mainstream pop music now, but, um, I would never uh, claim to have, any did. sort of ownership over it but it's 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 how music works and you hear something you like you, mm. you you run with it you know i mean like the stuff that i was making was uh i was just in my head i was just ripping off people whose music that i really liked have yeah. you got any of it stuff that um, you liked? yeah i mean big influence stuff yeah you should play some of that and i've also heard you talking in the past about idm and r&b or something yeah yeah and, yeah and trying to combine those two things yeah. at the time for you yeah um i don't even know what me, idm was, means what does well, IDM mean? it was an, an old term for for intelligent dance music you not, know I'm i mean? not in it like, exactly but it 
was perceived as some sort of left field electronic mm-hmm. kind of thing, which I wasn't really expecting because it, uh, to me, again, to me, it was just like, it's just me making hip hop beats. But um, so that opened me up to a new audience as well. Can you tell me what Lucky Me is? Lucky Me is, uh, well, it's kind of changing by the year, but um, it was the name of the first club night that we started running in 2002, I think. And it grew from a small club night to a record label to a fashion brand to was a filmmaking arm of it, a photography arm. So just a group of creatives, basically all all um, collaborating. And how did you first meet Dominic Flanagan? I think I actually met him at one of the DJ battles, like one of the very, very first DJ battles I ever did. But we've, you know, we've been sort of creative partners along with another, another guy called Martin Flynn. Um, we've been creative partners now for for know, 15 years or something like that you know? he i think it's definitely important for us to talk about dom because he has such an influence on the creative on the visual Absolutely, on the videos yeah. on the Absolutely. design yeah. and everything yeah, yeah. and it's a little known fact that he used to mc as well but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep it moving um no i'm just joking dom but um i want to talk to you about this record heralds of change yes um which I think might have been the first bit of vinyl that I got from you, actually. It's you alongside uh, Mike Slot. This is from yes. 2007 yeah. on an Irish label called um, All City. Yeah. Um, tell us about this project. Uh, this was a, a, a joint production project with um, a good friend of mine who... You know, it's an, another another situation of we were we were both making music in Glasgow and we're like, right, why not just try out some shit together, basically, and um, put out this record, which is just like a really just like a load of instrumentals, but kind of took off on its own little journey. So, two thousand seven, right? Which was also the year that you were. A participant in the academy. Yes, yes. yes. Um, it's good to have you on the couch in 2015. <laughs> How was your academy experience in 2007? It was um, extremely nerve wracking for me because it was it was the first time I'd been on a long haul flight. I think actually because I was in Toronto, I was never never the most like. But you never, never to kind of get to just like jump into a room and be like, "Yo, let's make loads of music." You know, like it's. I was always kind of like made music alone, so to be thrust into that environment with a load of people that you don't know, I suppose like actually really refreshing. And I still keep in touch with quite a few of the people who I was in, in the academy with at that point. Yeah. I mean, I guess everyone here on day one had to come up and do the thing on the couch where you introduce yourself and no one likes it and it's always awkward and everyone hates it. And some people are more natural at it than others, but fundamentally we all have the same fear. Um, does it get any easier? You know, having been in that position as someone who you just said yourself didn't naturally come out of his shell, does it get easier over the years? Yeah, from experience, you just learn how to to handle yourself in particular situations but um that was certainly like a steep learning curve you know yeah. to be thrown in at the deep end like that but i'm i'm really thankful that you know when i actually got the the uh the email that that i'd gotten into the academy i was like what the? like i was blown away by that because mm. i'd seen you know there was a couple of tv programs and stuff about it i think around that point and I was like, wow, if I could get into this, this would be like, this would blow my mind. And, um, you know, filled out the ridiculous application. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, had no no, uh, no hopes of, of getting in really, but, but I'm super, super thankful that uh, mm. I, I had that opportunity. Yeah. And um, something pretty special happened on, on that academy, I remember because there was a lecture with Steve Beckett yes. from Warp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that was around the time when he decided to sign you to Warp Recording. Yeah, um, that was the first time that I'd met Steve, and we 
we'd been briefly in touch before that with Steve Beckett as the, the the person who founded Warp Records, which is the label that I, I release uh, on. But I had never met him before, and he came and gave a lecture, and that was just really inspiring in itself because to see someone who's like, you know, he's, I guess, you know, Steve's probably, he's probably, you know, almost 60 now or something like that. And to see him still have his ears like so much to the ground for someone like me who was just like, you know, putting out records which we were pressing like 300 copies or something like that for him to be aware of something like that was like mind blown for me and wasn't Rusty was being signed around the same time as well was that right? Rusty got signed I think about a year or two later but we were pretty much doing stuff at the, at the same time yeah and Flying Lotus as well yeah and it seemed like you and Rusty had a bit of a symbiotic relationship in terms of influence as well and yeah yeah absolutely um I mean, like, I'm the, I'm the biggest Rusty fan. <laughs> He's informed my sound and I've I've informed his sound. And yeah. it's like, you know, I think it was, for, for a period it was like, and it still is to some extent, but like, I think it's quite good to have a kind of a, a sparring partner sure. when you're making music as well, because you're like, I can... I'm going to one up you on that, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of fun to like, have that though. Do you uh, feel that healthy competition thing, or do you not? Do you not bite? I mean, I, I think it's healthy in terms of keeping you motivated and stuff like yeah. that. I yeah. do think it's healthy. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the effect that um, you know signing to Warp Records had for you personally, and in terms of perception in the wider world, but also what it's been like working with them since then. Um. It's you know it's it's been amazing because there there's not that many labels that I'm aware of that are the 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 size of Warp in terms of their their distribution and their their outreach, but they'll still give you complete creative freedom. I'm not going to name any other labels, but it's not something that you're going to get from too many labels that are that are on on their kind of level so i'm i'm really grateful that i had the opportunity to 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 release with them i'm I'm still super grateful to have that that level of creative freedom to be like right well i've made this record that sounds like this but the next record i'm going to do is going to be entirely different and you're not going to tell me that i can't do that because i'm just going to fucking do it you know what i mean and they're like yeah go for it you know and this is the first one you did on Warp, right? Yeah. Polyfolk Dance, which yeah, is yeah. actually just six amazing tunes. Um, Polka Dot Blues is classic. Velvet Peel Speed Stick, I think, is the real overlooked Hudson Mohawk joint, by the way. This, cause I think you're the only person who gets the drum pattern of it. Everyone else is like, what the it was always my favourite. I don't know why everyone's so late on that tune. Speed Stick, mark my words, will become a Hudson Mohawk classic. But we're going to play Overnight, is that all right? Because that's the big one. This is that that's something else which at the time was given to like a bunch of MCs and everyone was like don't know what to do with this like it's I can't I can't make a song with this but um yeah it's definitely true that there's a thread in your music that always seems to be ahead of its time and I know that sounds a bit corny but it's it's so true man because at, I used to play this all the time in clubs what is this 2009 and people would you know half the room was definitely not ready for it but it's you play it now and people think it's the the sound of the club you know so um has that been frustrating for you or is that something that excites you when people don't get you straight away <laughs> um i mean obviously there's an element of frustration in it obviously yeah. but um you know especially when there's like a whole crop of people coming off the back of that that, sure, sure. that that are because people are now ready for the sound it's like you know they get a lot of shine from that but i mean i can't help making the music that i want to make at a particular time and that's i'm not gonna i'm not gonna like dumb it down for for a particular era or a particular 
crowd or whatever, you know. So around this time, I suppose the demand for you to play live and to DJ and all of that kind of stuff started to pick up, right? As soon as you started releasing on Warp. And now, obviously, as most people know that make music in the room, you know, uh, releasing records, sadly, is is often a business card for getting DJ bookings, right? In terms of actually paying the bills, as you were saying before, it's not selling the records that often pays, it's the DJ gigs that come around them. Yeah. Um, how did you deal with that pressure? Because you strike me as someone that's, whose comfort zone is very much the studio. Like you're, you're happiest in the studio. You seem, you know, at peace yeah. in the studio and then suddenly everyone's expecting you to go and perform. How do you deal with that newfound sort of pressure of having to wheel, wheel out the decks on stage and do it live? I mean, I certainly have had my share of, of, uh, you know, shows like you're saying where you play and stuff like that. And most of the room is just like, you know, um, but I think it's just uh, uh, again, it's just you know spending time doing it and 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 building on it, and it's something that you can, I guess, you can get more more sort of like ballsy with it as you become more comfortable in front of crowds. You can be like, right, well, fuck you, I'm just going to play this. You know what I mean, <laughs> like. And, uh, you know, sooner or later, people will come round to it. One question I have to ask you, listening to tunes like Rising 5 and, you know, some of the drum programming just makes me wonder, were you actually a drummer before you were a drum programmer? Because it's like, yeah, you do things yeah, that only yeah, a drummer yeah. would actually do in yeah, terms of roles yeah. and hi-hats hi and stuff like I that. Was a, I was a drummer, but only only in school. I never pursued it further than that. Um I kind of wish that I had, but it's, I, I guess it's just, you know, now it's, I really just do it with programming, but um, I guess once you, once you've been drumming for a certain amount of years, you have that mindset of where, where a particular role belongs or where a particular yeah, yeah, yeah. little flam belongs, whatever. This is a record that's called Butter, which was the first full length record that I released. I was particularly proud of the, the uh, hippopotamus in the, in the gatefold. <laughs> yeah, this was, the, this was the first full length that I released and also confused a lot of people. <laughs> well, that is an amazing example of, you know, the drums that you do that I love, but there's another really important side to your composition. Um, loads of people that have computers and drum machines and NPCs can make great beats, but it's a harder thing to have a real grasp of writing a hook or writing a melody or writing a song. And I think that that is one of the things, one of the many things that really sets you apart. And um, I just wanted you to talk to, to us a little bit about the importance of that because everyone says, oh yeah, Hudmo Beatmaker, yeah, obviously one of the greatest beatmakers in the world at the moment. But people often overlook your ability with music and um, composition and hooks and musicianship. I think it's just, you know, I, I, I don't sing, but I can hear a, a hook over, over a set of chords or something like that. So like, it's kind of like, it's not, I'm not writing it on a, keyboard or anything I'm just sort of like right I know that I can hear this particular melody playing over the top of this and you know just kind of there's no real explanation by this way. and you play it yourself um yeah I, I I program it in myself I mean I can't I I can almost play keys but I mean as far as as far as key playing I mean Wherever Oliver is, Oliver has been a huge inspiration to me as well as, as far as like trying to learn <laughs> to play keys properly. <laughs> and musically, where do you think, you know, obviously we can hear you've played hip hop, we played Just Blaze, you know, it's clear from the drums where a lot of your feeling influence comes from and also the, the pitched up happy hardcore stuff. But musically, there's a big soul thing going on in there as well. Where's that coming from? Um, that's, I mean, I guess it's coming from, from 
my dad's records, which is like a super cliche answer that everybody says. No, no, like, that's where I was going with know. it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it it's uh, came from from being raised off, and not even anything that's particularly you know underground or anything like that just like you know the Vandross records and stuff like mm. that but the or you know Anita Baker records or this type of thing but stuff that I was listening to or I was being played at a very young age that sort of resonated with me maybe like subconsciously I don't know yeah definitely and there's there's something else as well which is unique to you which is almost um I don't know what the word is. It's like folk or something in there. That's. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I mean, I think that's also from. Probably comes from from Glasgow as well because yeah. there's a there's a big sort of art school kind of rock slash hesitate to use the word folk, but like you know yeah. electronic left field kind of uh, scene. Uh, surrounding the the art school in Glasgow, um, which is also where we were doing a lot of our events. So we were getting support gigs for, even though we were doing stuff like this, myself and and uh, like the people, myself and like Rusty and whoever were getting support gigs for, like Caribou or you know uh, like Sage Francis or some like stuff that had you know came from not necessarily the same world at all but yeah. we were being exposed to it so we were, yeah. it kind of took a, a an influence on our, on our own productions so talk to me about um some of the crews that you've linked up with notably Jacques and the canadian connection and in particular yeah. lunas yeah so i guess like around the time when we were developing our, our little scene in glasgow there was a a similar thing developing in Montreal and also a similar thing developing in LA particular sound coming out of these like really small like grungy club nights I guess it was like the year the year after I was in the academy we decided that we would do like a sort of gig swap where a bunch of us from Scotland would go out to Montreal and LA do some shows there and we would in turn have them back to play in Scotland and um, you know pretty much everyone out of that crew of people has gone on to to be fairly successful in their own right um, but um, in particular Lun Lunas uh, I connected with him and we spoken for years about doing a record together you know we spoke for four or five years about oh we need to get in the studio we have to get in the studio you know we eventually spent like two or three days in the studio made this record with uh, no sort of uh, idea of it being anything no, no intention of releasing it no like project name for it or anything like that um just like here's some stuff that we probably wouldn't make on our own so let's just like throw some ideas together and just see where it goes and it ended up being uh, becoming this project called tonight um which we then decided maybe we should release these <laughs> and uh you know, pressed up the records and then that sort of took off as its own kind of little scene in itself as well. This sound is kind of, it's a little bit done for me, but it is the sound of like fucking Budweiser advert or such and such advert or, you know, every brand is having remakes done of, of the, but what was really exciting about the stuff at the time when we actually made it and about the time when, when we released it was the fact that because there was no such thing as quote unquote like EDM trap 
or whatever you want to call it, because that didn't really exist. Um, you, we were getting all, all sorts of, you know, across the board DJs playing the songs from yourself to fucking Richie Houghton to Calvin Harris to you know because no one knew where to file it because the, the that sort of sound didn't have a it hadn't been kind of pigeonholed yet so it was really exciting for us at the time because the, the record even ended up on, on billboard chart somewhere it was like number 150 or something but even that was just like mind-blowing for us um i have to say that though watching sort of ten thousand people going nuts to that tune at coachella right at the height of that summer that it was really popping off was you know exciting enough for me being right in the middle of the crowd so i can only imagine what it was like to be able to do that two producers on stage you know it wasn't really a tried and tested format you know we no, know the that's, dj that's, producer format but yeah. it was like that you yeah. you kind of took it somewhere different in terms of what's possible for the producer slash DJ instead of DJ slash producer. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, a, an experiment really, you know, and it, a, a lot of it was just, you know, fucking around and seeing, seeing what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, it really, it really worked for a long time until the point where I was like, I'm fucking bored of doing this. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I wanted I, to. I want to. I want to do something a little bit more varied. Then, like every interview I do now, it's like, oh, when is the next tonight record coming? When is the next fucking? And I'm like, well, it'll be there when it. It'll be there when it's there, you know. But <laughs> I think it's a really good subject to talk about. Actually, the power of no and the power of saying no and knowing when to say no, and knowing about the art of ending things, you know, because. Um, it would have been very easy for you to rinse that one to high heaven, you know, and yet you decided to not do that and go off and make your solo albums respectively. That EP ended up with, you know, US, US majors being like, right, we need 10 beats that sound exactly like this. Let's put 10 different rappers on them. We can get anyone you want. We'll make an album. We'll fucking like, that'll be great for like a year or two years and then I'll be fucking gone. You know, yeah. where's where's your where's your career then? You know. Yeah. So was that sort of the moment where you learnt about how to negotiate saying no to things that you'd otherwise love to do? Is that sort of mad period? Have you got any advice to impart about the importance of maintaining a balance in your creative endeavours? I mean, yeah, I just I think it's just important. To, I mean, this is just for me personally, but it's just important to keep things varied and keep yourself interested creatively rather than settling into just oh this is what people want to hear so i better just keep making this over and over and, and yeah. you know it's a very easy thing to fall into um for me anyway it's not particularly uh exciting or you know it, do it doesn't it doesn't give me the chills that that I got when we made those songs in the first place or when they when they were like at the height of their popularity you know and so of course tonight you, yourself and Lunis ended up being the main production credit on Blood on the Leaves which is the song we heard at the front uh, sorry at the beginning of the lecture um, talk to me about the process of working on Jesus how that came and, and what what it was like ending up working with Rick Rubin at Shangri-La? Um, I mean, I'm always, I'm always very cagey about, I mean, you were there yourself, you know, about, um, you know, what it's like as far as uh, it's what, what you're allowed to say. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely <laughs> always essential to observe the studio code. And so vagueness will be accepted, but I'm, I'm just saying like, um, yeah, on a personal well, I front mean, to have done it. Again, to, uh, to sit in a room that's probably you know no bigger than this little area here with Rick Rubin and Kanye, just and just like be like right now, feel like this should go here. This should sit here. This sounds good here. It's just like going from um, to go back to 
what I was talking about earlier in terms of like being in my mum's house in Glasgow. It's like, right, how am I on a, a ranch in Malibu? Like, <laughs> in a fucking little room with Ruben, you know? Um, so, again, like, mind blowing experience. But it's, you know, like we're saying, as far as like details of it, it's like, you have to be kind of like, you know, you can't say too much. No, for sure. Um, talking of details, you are definitely a details person when it comes to, you know, your craft of making tunes and beats. I mean, I can't say what it is that makes you stand out against the next beat maker, but it's definitely got to be something to do with the level of detail and precision that you put into making things. I mean, is there a bit of advice that you could give any producer or, or studio head no matter what genre they make? Yeah, I would say, um, again, just personally, a lot of the stuff I make, I don't release, and I end up wishing that I had released, so release music. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, probably about 75% of the stuff I make never gets never sees the light of day mm. and then i listen to it again a year later i'm like why the fuck did i not put that out you know but um got any dub plates to play <laughs> uh but no i think it's just important especially now in this soundcloud age you know mm. it's it, it's important to have that that presence you know right and, okay that's what you know like if if I would do anything differently, it would be like release more music, mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. So one question I wanted to ask you on a purely practical one is like when all this stuff starts to happen and things pop off and suddenly, you know, you're getting calls from Drake or Frank Ocean or whoever it might be or their representatives saying we want to work with you. Mm -hmm. How does the structure around you actually have to change to cope with that? How does your team have to change? How does how do you deal with getting the right manager or the right person to negotiate this world yeah, of selling beats I and mean, stuff? Does it's it's difficult if you come from a a purely or a, a more electronic background. You don't have that. You don't have. You have to learn this whole new world of. You know, this is how it works in terms of selling beats and and uh, you know working with mainstream artists and this type of thing so it's a, it's it's a learning process and you need to you need to really make sure that you have a tight team um because otherwise you're going to be waiting on a lawyer for like you know three months to send back a contract or some shit like that or, you know you need to make sure that you you stay on your your people and you delegate stuff but try and project manage it as much as you can personally try and oversee as much of it as you can to make sure it's exactly how you want it to be basically mm. so business-wise it can be frustrating but creatively is it one of the most fulfilling things you've done working with those artists in that yeah, environment yeah i mean how but, was the first but, time but i mean i've always said that as much as I, I love working with these artists, it's the same buzz that I got from finding out that I was going to be able to work with Warp, something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's it's a new, it's a next step, it's like a new endeavor. You know, it's, it has nothing to do with like the fame of such and such a person or, you know, it's more just like, this is you know, a whole new world for me to learn about and explore and yeah. like, keep things creatively interesting for myself, like I was saying. And talking of which, if we bring it right up to date with your with your current album, you know, we're talking about all this stuff and you've got all this pressure and people wanting to work with you and everything and you went off and made a piece of orchestral music and a song with Anthony from <laughs> Anthony and the Johnsons, which is, you know, definitely not the turn that most people that are sitting in A&R offices wanting 10 no. new tonight beats would have expected you to do. Or wanted me to do. <laughs> or wanted you to do, exactly, which is ma what makes it yeah. even more awesome. But, I mean, um, how did the relationship with Anthony come about? Anthony is someone who I've admired for years and years since since I heard that, that first record, you know. Someone played me that, the, you know, his first record at 
an after party at like eight in the morning or something and i was like what the fuck is this this is just like is this what kind of voice is this this is just insane like i don't understand what kind of music this is where this is he became someone who i i put on my bucket list of people that i really wanted to work with and i i pursued that for years and years and it never fucking worked and uh eventually he approached me luckily but um it it actually worked out really well and we're now gonna be um releasing a collaborative full-length record um in the near near future as well but again it's definitely not the sort of thing that um you know hip-hop a&r wanters would have wanted me to do how many of the tunes that you do as collaborative pieces with well-known vocalists or rappers are actually, you know, in the studio collaborating and how many of how many of them is just like deliver the beat and see what comes back and which um, do you enjoy more? Nowadays, almost all of them are face-to-face. Um, but certainly for, for like quite a long time, there was like, here's a beat, just see what see what happens you know um and i think that's still the case for even for a lot of major stuff that's still that's still the case i have grown to prefer working face to face with people just to have more of a a creative flow rather than just like here's one bit here's the other bit shove them together and you know and it's better to work work it up as a song together and that's something that actually I probably, probably like one of the first times I had done that properly was at the academy actually, but um, you know, it's still something that I'm not incredible at. I'm still working on that craft because that's a craft in itself. You know, working along someone who might have completely different, a complete different creative vision for for a song or something like that, but learning that craft this is, is really important please join me in saying thank you very much mr hudson Mohawk. thank you everyone thank you ross thanks a lot man hey this is todd burns again thanks for listening to couch wisdom uh before you go i just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the academy the Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Paris. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.